Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our teacher, Steve Butler. We are in a series right now exploring the important prophecy terms found in God's Word. You can follow along with our free study guide that you can download from our website. Simply visit whcbradio.org. That's whcbradio.org. Click on the program name, Exploring Bible Prophecy, and there you will find our free study guide. So open your Bibles, download your study guides, and prepare to explore Bible prophecy. Hello and welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy. Today we're picking up in Matthew chapter 3 where we left off in our last program. We were looking at Matthew chapter 3 verses 7 and 8. And of course this is part of our series entitled Important Prophecy Terms where we're looking at seven sets of terms dealing with important aspects of of prophecy, particularly prophecy yet to come, which is what we will be exploring in our next series when we look at the the next 30 prophetic events that take us from today all the way to eternity. And we're in point number three of these seven sets of terms. We're looking at the difference between the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of grace. And today, uh, as we have been for a while, we're in the gospel of the kingdom, and this is the gospel that Jesus preached to Israel when he came the first time 2,000 years ago as the Old Testament prophesied prophet, Messiah, king, and conqueror. And we uh, spent some time, as you can see from the worksheet that's available from this radio station, WHCB, uh, we went through the Old Testament to establish each point, each one of those points about prophet, Messiah, king, and conqueror. And then we also, in the Old Testament, looked at a number of scriptures showing that there was a tribulation that would come to uh, set up the kingdom. As we're looking forward to, and as I'm sure you've heard preachers talk about, there is a tribulation, a seven-year tribulation, and then a millennial kingdom of a thousand years. And that was what was prophesied would happen back 2,000 years ago when Jesus preached this the first time. And it would have all happened if they had accepted him, but of course they denied him. And therefore all those covenant promises that were covenanted to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so forth, all of those promises would be put on hold and fulfilled at a later time, which we believe will be fairly soon here uh, as it kicks off with the rapture of the church to take the righteous element off the earth so that there is nothing but godlessness on the earth the Antichrist can reign, and of course we'll see salvation take place during the tribulation, but that's a story for another day. Uh, and we've talked about that any number of times here on the program uh, because God is a gracious God and he never leaves, uh, never has a period of time in the history of the Bible where he hasn't had a remnant of believers. So that includes even during the tribulation period. But we're talking about 2,000 years ago right now about a gospel that was preached, denied, refused, but will be offered again during this this future seven-year tribulation, since it didn't happen before. It will happen again, and it will be the gospel of the kingdom preached. We see that in the New Testament. And then Jesus will come back, judge the earth, and set up his millennial kingdom. And that's all part of our next teaching series on the uh, the next 30 prophetic events. So it, it behooves us 
uh, it does us uh, good to understand what was Jesus preaching the first time he came, because that's what he's going to be preaching principally the next time he comes. So what is it that he was preaching to Israel? And we were in Matthew chapter 3. We saw where John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, announced, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he's announcing that this promised Messiah King was here. He was coming. I'm preparing the way for him, which would be about six months later. And he is here to set up the kingdom. So this gospel of the kingdom is what is in view here. And, of course, we we then went down to chapter uh, 3, verse 7 and 8 in our last program where it says that the Pharisees and the Sadducees came down to be baptized by John the Baptist because they just mentally thought that if I get baptized here, um, I'll just check that box off and, you know, it, I'm going to go to heaven anyway because I'm a Jew. I'm from I'm from Abraham. My bloodline runs to Abraham, and therefore I'm going to go to heaven and all I need to do here is this John the Baptist guy is saying I need to be baptized uh, to have my sins removed. So, hey, let's go ahead and do it. <laughs> well, I'm I'm purposely trying to make it sound flippant because that's the way John the Baptist saw these leaders of Israel. Look what he says in verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, from the wrath to come? So there's there's several things to take out of this. One, he is calling them out as being not, not righteous, but self-righteous. They're righteous within themselves. I'm all I need because I have Abraham. Abraham's my father. And I'll even throw in the name Moses. And again, I'm being a little facetious here, but it's to try and give you an idea of where the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and when you read those names, you're talking about the leadership of Israel, the religious leadership of Israel. There was no, quote-unquote, political leadership of Israel because they were under the thumb of the Roman Empire. So the, the political side of it was Rome, but the religious side, principally dominated by what they say are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and sometimes you'll also see scribes, which were kind of like the lawyers, Uh, included in that group. And what he's saying here is you have come thinking that's all that's necessary. There is absolutely no change of heart because you're, you're, you're a brood of vipers. But then he says, you're doing this because somebody has warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Well, what is this wrath that's being talked about? Well, that's the tribulation. All through the Old Testament, the Bible is replete over and over in many places with description after description of the tribulation period and how bad it's going to be and how gloomy and dark and full of fear and full of death and full of destruction. And it's coming. And if you repent of your sins, you could avoid that. That's what they're, they're thinking uh, is happening here. And of course they're probably not even thinking that they have to say anything. They just have to go get dunked as if that's all that's necessary. And that is so far from the truth, and we, we of course, know that. So I want to take us now to uh, to build on this um, whole point about the Pharisees and the Sadducees thinking that that's all they need to get into this kingdom that this man uh, that they're going to learn here in six months or so is named Jesus and what this is all about. So stay in Matthew chapter 3 with me, and let's go to verse 11. 
Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, and here's John again talking to the crowds, and it's got to be with an earshot of these same uh, Pharisees and Sadducees, this brood of vipers. Verse 11, he says, As for me, meaning myself, John the Baptist, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he, referring to Jesus, who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So first, do you see the distinction here in verse 11? John is baptizing you with water for repentance. Jesus is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And this is not a, a second um, event that takes place, as some people would lead us to believe, that you're baptized with water, but then you have to be a second time baptized with the Holy Spirit. When Jesus comes, it's going to be one baptism at one point in time, and it's a spiritual baptism, and that's the point he's making here. He's not referring to water at all here with Jesus. It is a spiritual baptism that comes through a belief in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, a belief in the one who was crucified, buried, and on the third day gloriously arose uh, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. It's through that belief that you have a spiritual union, a spiritual union with Jesus, and we call it a baptism. There is a baptism of water that is important. The Bible teaches it, but it's not a baptism that saves you. It's a baptism that identifies you for other believers that you are professing that you are a member of the church of Jesus Christ through belief in Jesus Christ. That it's a symbol, uh, not a not a requirement. In other words, if you died today without having been baptized in water, but you had believed Jesus Christ, you'll go to heaven. There's absolutely no doubt about that. But it's something, this water baptism is something that we are told to do um, for our fellow believers. It's a recognition that you have died, you have been buried, which means to be, um, that you identify with Jesus in his death, and then you identify with him in in his resurrection. The going down under the water is a symbol of death, coming out of the water is a symbol of, of a resurrection from death to a new life. But again, I want to heavily emphasize here, it's a pound-on-the-table type thing, that this water baptism does not save you, that it is merely a statement in the Bible that you should do this for the benefit of the body of believers so that they can recognize that you are one of the, the body of believers and that you are making that profession to them because it's important it's important to take that step. Uh, we can a- accept Jesus Christ, but we need to let other people know that we have done that, that we are a part of the body of Christ. So if you haven't taken that step, I highly recommend that you do that, that you in some way uh, make that profession symbolically or verbally, however, that you make that profession to others that you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's an important thing to do because you can believe something in your heart, but when you go to speak it, 
it takes on a a greater degree, a greater level of importance of impact, principally on you as the believer, because you're now stating what you believe to be fact. Is it a requirement to be saved? No. The Bible tells us very clearly with Paul and the Philippian jailer, all you have to do is believe, believe that Jesus Christ. But in order to to allow the Holy Spirit to then work in and through you, you have to um, allow that to come out, and that comes out through a profession. It comes out through a doing of of good deeds for the uh, the Lord uh, using the spirit, the the spiritual gifts that you've been given. Okay, I digress here a little bit, but I just felt that was important to understand here about baptism. He says he will baptize you at the end of verse 11 with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So we need to understand that aspect of it as well. And if we were to stop right there, we might end up in a lot of debates and trying to figure out exactly what's being suggested here. But uh, God is gracious. Look at verse 12. (laughs) He explains it. His, Jesus, winnowing fork is in his hand. And that winnowing fork, uh, if you have any background in or understanding of uh, the agrarian economy, particularly uh, 150, 200 years ago, that when you were separating the wheat uh, out to make it usable, you would use these forks and throw it up in the air, and the wind would catch the light material, which would be the shell, the husk, the, what they call the chaff, and would blow it away, and the heavier wheat would fall to the floor. And that's how they would go through the separation process, and the key word here is separation. His winnowing fork is in his hand, back to uh, verse 12 of Matthew 3. And he, Jesus, will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn. So this is the valuable product. And he will take that valuable product, separate it out, and put it in his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So here, a lot of times you see them just uh, take the winnowing fork, throw the whole product up into the air, and they let the wind blow the the chaff away. And ultimately, it'll it'll blow away and it'll degrade and, and return back into the soil. But in this particular case, he's using this uh, agricultural uh, example to make his point that he's going to separate the believer in him from the unbeliever. He's going to separate the righteous from the self-righteous. And a self-righteous person who believes in themselves, not in Christ. So I want to make that point clear because, you know, Sometimes you'll look at a person who's being arrogant and you say, well, they're self-righteous. This is a deep self-righteousness. This is a belief that they can get themselves saved. In this particular instance, at this point in time, the Pharisees, the Sadducees were self-righteous because they believed that they would go to heaven simply because they were in the bloodline of Abraham. That's the kind of or type of deep self-righteousness that I'm talking about here, a spiritual self-righteousness. So John the Baptist is telling us this is how Jesus, when he comes, how he's going to separate the righteous from the unrighteous. And he, and he goes to extremes. He says he's going to take the one, the wheat, which are the righteous, 
and he's going to gather them into his barn. He's going to take them to himself, take them to himself. A barn is an example of uh, the a place that a farmer owns. It's his. I'm taking you home with me. But he will burn up the chaff. He doesn't just let it blow away and go about whatever it's going to do um, in, in the fields around the uh, the threshing floor and ultimately biodegrade back into the ground. He says, no, I'm going to take that chaff and I'm going to burn it. Remember back up here at the end of verse 11, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's the separation right there. He's either going to give you the Holy Spirit of his Father or he's going to burn you up, which means uh, you're going to be in the lake of fire forever. So he says in the end of verse 12, he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And there's there's a key distinctive phrase right there, unquenchable fire. You could burn it up and leave it at that, just I'm going to burn it. But when he says unquenchable fire, that is the phraseology that's used to describe the lake of fire, the eternal separation of a individual from the love of God. That's what we call it hell, but it's really the lake of fire. It's a eternal separation from the love and the presence of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And it's going to be an unquenchable, it will go on for eternity. And that's the horrible aspect, just the horrible thought of that consequence of eternal separation from the love of God is in what is called the unquenchable fire, the lake of fire. So he's describing it right here. He's describing these two major extremes, these two major opposites. You're either going to be with me in my house or you're going to be in the lake of fire forever. It's your choice. It's your choice. It's a belief, a spiritual recognition uh, a heart recognition. Do you believe me for who I am? Uh, therefore, I will, you are the wheat. Therefore, you will be taken to my house. And the opposite of that is you disbelieve. You, you believe in your own righteousness, your self-righteousness. You will spend eternity in the unquenchable fire of the lake of fire. So we're going to follow along with that and build on that particular aspect as we go to the book of Micah in our next program. We're going to go to Micah and see a description of what this kingdom is going to be like if they had accepted him, an Old Testament description. And we'll do that next time. But right now, let's transition, as we always do, over to our Q&A time. And we are looking at a question here, who is not not going to be included in the rapture of the church. And we've described who um, who the church is, who the people are, and how they can be included in the rapture of the church. But we made the point that the rapture of the church only includes or in, encompasses the righteous believers in Christ over a 2,000-year period. And I say 2,000 because we're uh, 2,000 years into the creation of the church in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, and I personally am eagerly awaiting the Lord to rapture the church out at any moment here. So we're coming to the end of this 2,000-year period, but there's already been 6,000 years 
of biblical history with righteous people included in the 4,000 years before the church was started, and there are going, according to the Scriptures, going to be righteous people who will be saved after the church is raptured out. So the simple belief that I think a fair number of people unfortunately have is that it's the rapture of the church takes the righteous out and everybody else goes to hell and the lake of fire. Well, that's that's not true, and that's why we've been going through um, exploring the scriptures here to try and make this clear. And we did that by going to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 26, to show you that there are going to be several resurrections, not just the resurrection or what we call the rapture of the church, but there are going to be several other resurrections of righteous people. And by the way, there's going to be a resurrection of the unrighteous. Uh, That might be a surprise to you because a lot of times we associate the word resurrection with righteous, and that's not that's not true according to the Bible. As a matter of fact, let's go uh, to Acts chapter 24. And let's make that point real quick before we move on to our first group of righteous people outside of the church. So let's go to Acts um, chapter 24, right towards the end of the book of Acts. If you've got to Romans, you need to go back to the left. And if you've gotten to John, you've gotten too far over. Acts chapter 24 we want to look at uh, starting at verse 14. So Acts chapter 24, starting at verse 14, we read, um, But this I admit to you, that according to the way, and that's the way is the term they use to describe the movement of the Christian church at the beginning of the church back in the first century. They called it the way. According to the way, which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. So basically he's saying, I believe the Old Testament, which was all that was available to them at that point in time. The New Testament really hadn't been written. Uh, but that's okay, because Jesus, uh, because Paul said he um, reasoned with them in the synagogues, Jesus and him crucified, And he did that using the Old Testament. Yes, the Old Testament. (laughs) So again, continuing here in verse 15, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I, and this is Paul talking, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. And he's saying that because I don't want anybody to be resurrected to to an eternal separation from God. But there is going to be a point in time, and it's called the Great White Throne Judgment, and it is a horrible period of time at the end of the Millennial Kingdom. So this is yet at least let's say, 1,007 years. So there's a millennial kingdom of 1,000 years. That's what millennial means, 1,000 years. And there's going to be at least a seven-year period of tribulation. It's seven years, but we don't know when the church is going to be raptured. It could be raptured the moment before the seven-year starts, or it could be raptured several years before it starts. 
In fact, I personally think that it'll be uh, at least three or so years before the uh, tribulation actually starts, and we'll talk about that in another um, teaching uh, program. Uh, We'll talk about that specifically when we get into the 30 prophetic events, Uh, and I'll explain why I think that. So there's going to be at least 1,007 years. Then there's going to be what's called the Great White Throne Judgment, and we're told that every single person, this is in Revelation chapter 20, every single person who ever lived that was unrighteous, died in their unrighteousness, will be resurrected from whatever condition they're in, uh, even if they died 7,000 years before, like Cain. Cain will be resurrected, given his body back, and he will stand before the righteous Jesus as the judge at the great white throne, and he will be told all the sins that he committed, and then he will be sent to the lake of fire for tormenting forever in an unquenchable fire. So that's a horrible thing, but that is the prospect for those who refuse Christ. So we see that stated here, and there's several other places where it says the righteous and the unrighteous will stand judgment, will be resurrected to stand judgment at some point in time. But we're talking about just those who are righteous and are there those that are righteous that are not included in the rapture? And, of course, the answer is yes, and that's why we're spending time over several programs to answer this question. And we want to look at different groups, and last time we listed those groups, they're the Old Testament saints, and I'll define those in just a moment. The tribulation saints will be resurrected, and then you'll have Jews and Gentiles who make it through the seven-year tribulation and will be judged at the end of that tribulation. And we'll talk about what the Bible says about each of those judgments, a judgment for the Jews and a judgment for the Gentiles. And when they're judged, those that are judged righteous will enter the millennial kingdom. And the Bible says that they will live forever, meaning that um, if they die during the tribulation, excuse me, die during the millennial kingdom, and yes, there is death during the millennial kingdom, um, People get that mixed up with eternity. Uh, but if they die, they will they will live with the Lord forever because they were counted as righteous, and that's the important point. So we're going to start out by looking at the Old Testament saints, and I want to define first what an Old Testament saint is. And if you would, go to John chapter 7. John, the book of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John chapter 7, and look at verses um, 38 and 39. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were, future tense, were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The point here is an Old Testament saint was anyone who died before the church was started. So if you died, um, throw a number out, three months before Jesus was was was, um, translated back into heaven in Acts chapter 1, you're an Old Testament saint. You're still a saint. (laughs) You're still going to receive a glorified body at your resurrection, 
but it's just not going to be as part of the church and the rapture. And we'll explain that a little bit more in our next uh, Q&A portion. But remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Exploring Bible Prophecy. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.